It blows my mind to think about how often I start my day listening to this sound. You could say that it's the sound of something special starting, or under certain deadlines it often feels like a gun being fired at the start of a foot race. What it actually is, is the sound of an edit system booting up. This one's Windows based, but in the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what type of computer you use because it's just a tool. Don't get me wrong, it's an important tool, and over 75% of my time as an artist is spent sitting in front of it. But my tools don't control me. They don't come up with my ideas, they don't define me as an artist, and there isn't yet a filter that can apply my life experiences to a project. These days, when starting out as a filmmaker or photographer, you're often told that in order to be a professional, you need to buy things. Buy brands, subscriptions, be in debt. Like I said before, these things work for you, so you should be picking and choosing the tools that work for each project, and if it doesn't, you move on to the next. I want to go back to my recent trip to Las Vegas and the NAB convention. Like I said in the last episode, I only go to this giant sales pitch to meet with old friends. And this group of friends I met specifically while looking for a new tool. You see, I don't like to feel bullied. That's a big part of who I am. Now, if you were to tell me that this is how I have to do something, don't be surprised if I politely give you the middle finger, head out the front door, and find a different way in. A few years ago, my big expensive edit systems became obsolete, and I refused to pay a ton of money to a big brand that wasn't meeting my needs. That's how I found my buddies at Puget Systems. Now, yes, they are a sponsor for my show, but even if they weren't, I'd be telling you about these guys, and I'd be telling you about another way that works. But I promise you that this podcast isn't just one big sales pitch. As usual in this business, I have met some people that are really great human beings and we have a lot in common, from computers, to barbecue, to travel. Whenever I sit down and have beers with these guys, the conversations are always a lot of fun. So, that being said, come join us as we drink beers at a fancy high-rise hotel in Las Vegas while looking out the window at this gaudy, awful gold dildo of a building that has Trump's name on the side of it. <laughs> God, I love Las Vegas. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to a, another very special episode of In Love With The Process. I am out in Las Vegas uh, this week, and I am uh, joined by Dave, who is shooting video right now. And uh, you're not on mic for this one, so we are going to talk lots of shit about you. Um, I'm also joined by my brother from another mother. I think that's the way we're going to introduce you from now on. Great. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Tony Fernandez. Thank you very much uh, for having me again, even though I'm the one working on the audio equipment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Tony, Tony's also doing all of the audio work for the show. And I'm joined by some very special gentlemen um, from uh, Puget Systems. Uh, introduce yourselves one at a time. Yeah, uh, Eric Brown. Uh, I'm kind of our I'm our program manager for our recommended system program. So, also like a really nice guy. He's not really that boring in real life. Okay, nice. <laughs> <laughs> don't lie. Don't lie. Uh, I'm Matt Bach. I do a lot of our uh, software testing, just like Premiere, After Effects, Resolve, and all that kind of stuff. Look at all the hardware for the different software packages. He is that boring in real life. I am <laughs> that boring. In real life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my name is Chris Stevens, and I'm the Vice President of Operations. 
and I don't even know what that means. <laughs> that, there I am. We just know he does some stuff. I'm there. Some I'm, things. I'm present, and that's count. That's what counts. All right. So um, if you're wondering why we're all hanging out and talking, like I think uh, this episode, I'd like to get into a few things. Um, one, I really want to talk about uh, tools. And uh, as a filmmaker, there are a handful of tools that are a necessity. Um, you may need to have a camera, but you can always rent a camera. Uh, you may need to have some lights, but you can always rent lights. But if you are a storyteller, um, at some point or another, you need to have a computer and you need to have an edit system. And uh, as we know, Tony, uh, a lot of our stories are made in the edit. Um, and that creative process is often very fluid, very desperate at times. And um, I find that as a creator, I'm trying to put myself in a mindset in which I can come up with a great story and I don't want my tools to stop me from doing so. And uh, we have been in the edit suite many a times when I start screaming, I start screaming at the at this inanimate object and giving it a name and then giving it a bunch of horrible names. Um, yeah, it can be real rough because uh, that end of it is supposed to run as smoothly as possible because any little hiccup, it's way too far gone to do anything to fix it at that point. Like you, you have the footage you have, and now if your edit system is not working, like you still have to push through it get what you can out of it that could be a nightmare <laughs> and so I, what I want to do for this episode this isn't an episode where I'm plugging a product and then I'm saying to you guys you guys should all go out and buy this product um, as many of you know if you have uh, watched any of the in love with the process stuff if you've seen any of my work in the past um, I have a great relationship with these guys these guys do sponsor us and they take care of us um, and we have a really good friendship um, more so than anything else at this point. And I think it's just really sort of important to, to, to show that this business is about friendships. This business is about relationships. Um, and if you're setting out to do something like this, if you're setting out, maybe you're trying to find your own sponsors or maybe you're trying to uh, form your own relationships and, and learn about equipment and learn about gear, it's important not to be fake. It's important to really be passionate about your stuff. And it's important to find people that are incredibly passionate about what they do. Um, and it, sometimes it works. Sometimes it's a great mix. And I feel like we have a very special relationship because we all seem to like the same kind of stuff. And we all, at that one point in time, really kind of needed each other to make things better. I needed you guys to, to build us uh, better edit systems because I was just fucking bullshit at at apple and mac um and you know it was really great to find you guys and i don't want to go on forever about this i'll just wrap this up by saying that uh the one thing i really like about you cats is that you are a very i'm not gonna say you guys aren't a big business you guys are very like mom and pop like very simple shop that uh you do amazing work and i feel like when I need you, I can call you and I get you guys on the phone. And it's not just because we have this relationship. I mean, I've talked to other people that have worked with you guys and they get the same thing. They call you on the phone and they get you. Um, and from a filmmaker's perspective and like the high drama that we go through with our stuff, that's really important. The last thing that we want is to be 
in call waiting. So I guess that's as much of an intro as that I want to do with this. Um, you know, if you keep talking shit about Apple, they're going to break your phone. Yeah. I think it just happened recently, actually, yeah. where I had I was sitting for two days in customer support on my iPhone because they claimed that my account was disabled, my iTunes account was disabled. So I had to call and I, I, I'm gonna talk shit. I had to call them to get my account re-enabled and I sat on the phone for a while and then they're like, look, you gotta change your password. And I'm like, oh my God, all right, fine. Let's change my password. Then you had to wait a few hours for that to kick in. Then uh, they're like, everything should be fine. Great, everything's fine. So then I go in to use my iTunes account. And this isn't for me to download music or anything, by the way. This is so that I can listen to the music that I currently have downloaded on my phone. Because as soon as my account was disabled, I couldn't listen to songs on iTunes. I couldn't get new apps downloaded. Like I had to try to upload or, or download a new parking app for Boston because I was in a bad situation. It's all my fault I'm dependent on this stupid thing. But because I didn't have my password right, I was hosed. I couldn't do that stuff. So then uh, they said, okay, a couple hours, you get this fixed. A couple hours go by, I go to use my account again, says that it's disabled. So I call them back on the phone, wait on the phone for a bunch of time, and they go, oh, that must be with this other department. Let's put you through to this other department. So I go to this other department, get on the phone with them, and they go, oh, that's weird. There was a billing error, and for some reason, you had some spending things that happened that didn't seem like what you would normally do, so we suspended your account. And I go, you didn't call me, you didn't tell me. Like, none of that happened. And they said, yeah, so what we need to do is we need to change your password. And I was like, okay. And they said, that'll take like 12 hours to, to enact it. And I literally said to the girl on the phone, I go, what do you put like a messenger on a bicycle and have it ride the <laughs> password change to someone? Like, how does the 12 hour thing work? I'll tell you what really happened is they put you on hold. They were like, and then they talk and go, how can we fuck with this guy? <laughs> See, I'm telling you, that's what happens. Exactly. 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 That's 100% what happened. I've never heard of some shit like that. It's that's good. total lie. I'm like red flagged at this point. Yeah, they got you. They Googled you. They, oh, that, that's the dick trying to get everyone off Max. So, uh, <laughs> break his phone. He calls out Tom's disabled. We don't actually have that. Yes, we do. <laughs> 12 hours. Well, It's like an AOL account. I mean, 12 hours, that's a long time. It made no sense. It it's like no dealing sense. with Comcast right there. Yeah, Comcast. Comcast the worst. But, um, well, it's cool that we're talking because when I first reached out to you guys, I think you and I were yeah. the first two that, that, that talked, yeah, right? Yeah, we talked for like an hour. And let's talk about how that worked out because I think a lot of filmmakers would be interested to know how the sponsorship thing worked out because I think there's a lot of filmmakers out there that write for sponsors and they never get a response and they never hear anything. Like, why did you end up deciding to team up with us? Uh, I always look for people and I get sponsorship requests like every day. So the first thing I, I always look for in a sponsorship request is demonstrable work. Like I want to be able to, see, even if you're not getting paid for it, are you doing uh, reviews on the equipment you're doing? Are you, are you show me that you can produce? It's uh, a sponsorship opportunity is kind of like bringing a member of the family on as an employee, you know? And so you have to say, can they do the work? So a lot of people come to me and say, Hey, I'm going to, uh, review your system on my YouTube channel. And I, I don't see a single system review. Like you review your crappy $400 PC, you know, just show me that you can do a review. Um, but I think that's the big, that's the first thing. So uh, uh, we, I went on and saw you had done other work like that. And so, okay, it's worth a phone call. 
you know, that's worth a phone call. That, that alone, for me, gets you on the phone. That's smart. That's good, because a lot of people don't consider that stuff. Um, and then once we chatted about stuff, because at the time I was talking to a couple of different companies, because of course I do the sprawl to see who I can get my hands on. And there were some larger companies that I was talking to, and I can't, honestly can't even remember what their name was. Um, and then I remember talking, I think I was talking to you, it was either you or John, um, and it was, you guys were like, look, we know that we're a smaller company, we know that we're a smaller thing, but if you go with us and you decide to work with us, then we promise that we'll be dedicated and we'll promise that we'll help you guys out, we'll promise to do all that stuff. And that really, really switched it. And I'm really happy that I went that way because I feel like if I had gone with one of the larger companies, we would have been completely marginalized and it would have been like, oh, great, you know? And then you start to get into that whole game of like, what kind of traffic do you get? Like, what kind of page hits do you get? Yeah, you can't, I think it's a poor uh, poor measurement when you're talking about traffic or engagement. I mean, that stuff's interesting to me. I certainly ask people in our business about that, that kind of stuff, but it really doesn't tell the whole story. I mean, you have to, you're gonna go on a journey. If you're gonna get into a relationship like this with somebody, you have to say, okay, this is a two, three, four year minimum commitment for it to really bear fruit. I mean, we've been doing content creation now uh, as a focus. I mean, we've been in business 16 years, but it's really been a focus in the last four. And we're only now like in the puberty stage of our business. You know what I mean? Uh, we're really even trying to figure out who we are in the space. So I think it's, uh, I think, uh, yeah, Laura, that's one of our advantages of being a smaller company. You can bob and weave. I don't, you know, I, I like the statistics, but they don't mean, they don't mean much. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally does. And, and, I was really happy that that was the, the route that, or the belief system that you have because sure, we have our history as music video directors and we get a lot of uh, page hits uh, if we do something with uh, like a huge band. So of course, like you, the traffic that you get for the band goes to that. But my concern once we started to get into this stuff was like, this takes time. It takes time to get a following. It takes time to get people interested. It takes time to do that. Um, and. I was just really excited when you guys were like, look, we'll support you, we'll be a part of this, and it's a growth process. Um, and that sort of energized myself and, the, and Tony and the people that work with us. So any of the content that we started to create for you guys, we were really 100%. It wasn't sort of like, you know, hey, oh, look, we just gotta do this. We have to throw this together yeah, for you guys. Just yeah. throw the shit together and then you can get it out. Like, you know, we go through uh, the process of like getting good music and getting music licensed for it and like and, and putting together these pieces that we honestly as filmmakers want to see so it isn't just like an unboxing video and here's all this shit but it's um something that is engaging and fun to watch and you know we're taking the time as storytellers to do these things so like let's make it a little interesting for ourselves and make it work for everybody so. you know i think it's important for listeners to understand like i if you could fall into a trap if you're in their position where you would say, um, I just want to get a sponsorship. And that's a poor mentality. What it needs to be is the right one because a poor sponsorship arrangement can really be a drag on your life. Um, you know, everyone we sponsor is really part of our family. Um, they're people we hang out with and talk to um, and spend time with because we enjoy their company. So if you're on the other side, like if I was in your chair, Mike, it's like if, if we were a poor partner, it would really suck and it would affect your business. So I think that it's important for people to go, well, I got to get a sponsorship. No, you're better off 
with no sponsorship than a bad sponsorship arrangement. You know, that's something you can't get hung up on of, well, I got to to be legit. I got to be sponsored. No, if you're if you're making stuff, if you're creating, then you're legit. And I think that having a sponsorship is just a tool and uh, you can't let it be a status item. You know what I mean? That, oh, because I have this sponsorship, I now have arrived. And it's like, ah, that's not really true. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that because that was never, that's a weird point because it was never something that I had ever thought about. And when we started to approach you about a sponsorship, I felt, you know what it was? It was just the pure anger that I had. You were when pretty I, pissed off that first phone call. Yeah. Like the pure anger that I was having with the computer and with the system and everything that I was going through. And then just the dumbfounded realization that there wasn't this information out there that if you were to break away from that system and try to make something on your own, it wasn't very easy. It wasn't, it was, it was really difficult. And I used to build PCs as a kid, so I know a little bit about them and I know a little bit about that stuff, but it was a really hard thing. And for me to turn to my business partner or people that I work with who are Mac bred, you know what I mean? And that, that's the way, you know, like, and it's right. Mac for years has always been straightforward, never, like never crashes, quote, quote, never crashes, like, like industry standard, never have a problem. You buy it, you set it up and you go. And they've just steadily gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And they've changed their model where it, had, where it went from being uh, for professionals to more of the prosumer level to the consumer yeah. level that, at that, that point. such a huge drop off because for years they were known as the like artist's brand as far as uh, computers went. And they're genius about it. I was reading a book on how they do their marketing. Their marketing is not hi, we're Apple, we sell computers. Their marketing is, hi, we're Apple, we change the world, we're, we're a, lifestyle. a lifestyle. Yeah, we're a lifestyle brand. And yeah. so you can continuously sell that lifestyle and you never really uh, hunkered down by a gear or accessories or any of that stuff. You're, you're just selling, you're selling that Kool-Aid for that lifestyle. And so when people get on that, it's not a cheap decision. You know, like when we decide that we're going to buy an iPhone and we decide we're going to buy these things, you know, it's like a $300 investment, you know? And, and then if you're going to buy uh, a MacBook Pro, it's like a, you know, I think my, the one I have is from like 2013 and I think that guy was like 1800 bucks, you know, for, for the initial investment. Now, mind you, my laptop is awesome. Like I love their laptops. Their laptops are killer. I never have a problem with their laptops. And I, I never really had a problem with them until they seemed to walk away from my industry. And at that point, it was really difficult for us because the Kool-Aid that they were pitching was, we'll never leave you. It'll be you, fine. But do we'll you think it was it. a walk away? Because when you say walk away, and I don't know, I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the phrase walk away to me evokes um, like the idea of intentionality. Or I think, I wonder sometimes if Apple thought that group was still with them and just didn't notice. You know what I mean? Like I really do. I really feel that they consider themselves a content creation and then all of a sudden they discovered that, whoa, our people aren't around anymore. Where are they? Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, through relationship neglect. But I sometimes wonder if it was like an intentional because walking away seems intentional to me. Yeah. And that's good. I'm happy that you corrected me on that because I don't think it's like a hoo hoo. Uh, yeah. You know I mean? Like there isn't some guy in a cave somewhere yeah. going like, how do we make it? You know, it's no malicious intent there. I think they just honestly felt like, hey, look, we know what's right. Go this route. We're going to change the way you guys do editing. This is going to be better for you. 
the workflow is going to be different. And I, they made a gross miscalculation of not supporting older projects. Yeah, we'll find that out. That was it. Like that, like if you're looking at the core part where like all of a sudden our industry went, uh, you know. But you talk like about that, that in mechanical terms though, Mike, of like we couldn't get to our old timelines, but did it really like, it seems to strike a harder nerve than that for you. You know what I mean? Like it's not really about, it's not really about not being able to get the old timelines. That's just a technology challenge that can be done. But did you, did, did, did that, was that kind of like a, you know, them telling you to fuck off, you know what I mean? Or, or, or you don't even know me anymore. And so you just do this change or how did you feel as a creator at that moment? Well, you know what it is? It's not anything that serious. It's, it's just, it's a tool and a tool starts to tell me what I have to do. Yeah. So it's like, if you're going to go out and get a shovel and suddenly the shovel tells you that you got to be wearing gloves and you got to have a certain pair of boots on and you got to do this stuff. You're like, fuck you. You're a shovel. Yeah. Like I'm going <laughs> to dig a hole with you. And that's, yeah. that's basically what's going on. And so for them to start to turn everything and go, guys, you got to do this. And then my aggravation isn't necessarily with them. My aggravation is with the users because then there is this whole cultish thing that circles around it where people are like, are you using a Mac? And like, it's a stature game where like you flip open the laptop and you're looking at it, you're doing that stuff. And maybe it's just who I am. I just get really frustrated when you can see an option and no one pays attention to that option and no one gives it any validity. Yeah. And if you're in our business as a, a post-production house or somebody else, the first thing they would say to you is like, you guys use PCs and you would potentially lose work and you would potentially not get clients. How does that integrate with our stuff? Well, that's a solid question. Here are our answers of how we make that integrate. We use this other program and we Mac format all our drives and our PCs are able to work on Mac formatted drives. It'll be seamless for you. Yeah, but you're using a PC, you know? And so that's where my anger came in and it wasn't necessarily Mac that did that to me. It was just the results of that cult, yeah. you know, that circles around it. And, and then I got irritated and went like, well, fuck you. I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to find a way to do this. And then I went out to hunt for it. And then when I found you guys, it was like, oh, cool. Because then I also had to be a responsible, uh, a responsible businessman and go like, okay, I can't. Sure, I can go out and build all these edit systems. Sure, I can go out and buy the cases. You know when you build, you guys build all the time. You buy stuff and the hardware comes and it doesn't work or it doesn't fit in or you break something when you're sliding it in and there's that whole game or you install the software and for some reason you're getting crashes because it's not working with this stuff. I've been there and as a responsible business owner, I can't, and the guy that brings, one of the guys that brings in all the work and the content and creates the content, I can't be tech support. So like I hit that road of like, I know that I can build a system that would be faster and better and cheaper than this thing. And I can start to make a profit on it sooner than I could with a Mac, but I can't be the guy that supports this thing. That's really, that's a great point. And I think that's something that people miss when they buy a business tool with a PC, they'll say, well, I can build my own. But I remember this old trucker uh, told me a saying about uh, being in the trucking business. He said, the truck only costs you money and the wheels aren't turning. And I think that's a lot like an edit machine. You know, your job is to get job work. 
and it's not to build a PC, it's not to service a PC. Those are your tools. And so they have to work. And so if you're, I mean, one job, I mean, if you get, if that, if the, the difference between building your own and buying one, like from us or anyone else in the market, really like what, if that got you one more job that you can turn faster, it pays for the difference. Yeah. And then you're in the gravy. Yeah. You know? And so I think it's important when you, if you're, if you're a hobbyist, be a hobbyist, but if you're going to get in the business, like there's a cost to doing that. And I think you got to jump in, you know, that's uh, people, people skimp out and they spend their time. The time is the one thing that you, that is definitely finite is your time and uh, your effort, your mental bandwidth. I mean, all your creative juices, if it's spent uh, trying to figure out why your hard, your computer's not booting, then, then you're going to sit down and do an edit. Well, you're worn, you're worn the fuck out, man. Tech support will do that to you. You know what I mean? And it never happens. Like, it's not like it's like, oh, we have a lazy Monday. I went into work today and I went to start up my computer and it didn't start up. It's always like right in the fucking trenches. Yeah. <laughs> where you're like right in the middle of it and then some shit happens. Or you get that spinning pinwheel of death and you're sitting there going, oh my God, I just rendered out stuff the same fucking way I did today, yesterday, without a problem. It's like the machine is communicating with my client and they're screwing me. Yeah. Like he's just sitting there going like, oh my God, this no, is no, killing it's, it's terrible because uh, 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 windows of time in post-production, like they're, they're scheduled so tightly between uh, finishing your edit and delivering. Like it's so, so tight. So when you do have that problem, that, you know, already going to be 10 to 12 hour workday of finishing out a project, editing, mastering, all of those final touches now turns into an 18 hour, why the fuck is nothing working day? And they should be, you know, I mean, I think it's important for people to know it should be, uh, it should be tight. That time should be tight. I mean, you got to keep it efficient in your business. Yeah. If you really, if you're listening to this and you want to make a, I mean, any business, it's about efficiencies. It's about having processes and it's about having efficiencies. That's yeah. how you make money. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you're looking for. And you're, you're trying to come up all the way through with filmmaking. Filmmaking, we talked about this in the last podcast or the next podcast, however we release it with Rod. Um, filmmaking, is a, filmmaking has all these systems in place to take chaos and make something out of it. Because essentially what you're doing every time you make a project, whether it's a movie or commercial or a, a promo video, is you're starting a new business at that point. You're, you're, you're literally hiring a whole new staff, maybe some regulars that, that come on board, and you're, you're bringing in all this talent, you're dealing with scheduling, you're dealing with all this stuff, so you have like this hurricane of shit that is swirling around you and you're trying to make sense of it and, and you're trying to push forward. And in the beginning when you're an indie, <clears throat> you barely make it out of those storms. You're like, oh, wow, I almost made it. Like all this stuff was crushing me and everything was pushing me down. I, pu I, cr I crawled my way out. And most of the time, you as the creator are the one that has to pick up all the slack because you don't have money. So you're like, oh, I was editing for like three weeks for 15 hours straight. I haven't slept in a month. Or like I had to s spend every dollar from my bank account to make this thing work. Great. You do that in the beginning because you got to. You got to prove your track record. You got to show the product like you were saying before. But then you hit a point where you've been doing it long enough that you're like, I can't live like this. I cannot be that guy that is like desperately trying to crawl my way out of this. There has to be a system in place. And there is. And from the filmmaking side of it, there's like a hundred and 
Well, I, I got to get the numbers right. It's like 150 years that cinema's been around or something like that. Terrible with it. But there's a system that's there. So like when you're on set, there are certain crew positions. There's an order to operations. Like simply before you roll, the order that you that you stage things. So like there's a system called, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but it's called block light shoot. So like you have a shot, right? So on the script it says, Chris walks in the room, takes his pants off, and moves everything. You know what I mean? That's pretty standard. Yeah. <laughs> so you have you to be have, expected. You have an entire crew of people that are there. Lighting techs, you know, uh, makeup person to make sure your ass looks great. Uh, you have wardrobe. You have all this stuff. They all want to jump in and do their job. A, because they want to impress and they want to do it right. B, they want to get done and they want to get out. So everybody's ready to go. And so if there isn't a system, everybody just goes and everybody jumps in and they're all over each other. And the lighting guys, from a lighting perspective, you're like, I don't even know where to light. I have enough lights. I can light the entire room. Like, where do I put the lights? What do I do? Show me what's going to happen. And so there's this system that's in place, block, light, shoot, where the director will take all of his department heads, bring them into the space, and then work with the actors and we'll just walk through the space. And the actors will go, I think we're going to go here. We'll land here. We'll do this. And the director's like, I'll use this lens here. I'll do this here. I'll do that there. So that you're, you're feeding all this information to this, basically your generals and your army. And so then everybody goes through the process of working at that point, lighting and doing all that stuff. And then you do the shoot. This is a system that has existed for years. And then when you get into the independent world, when I started in the independent world, it's like they forgot it. So you'd show up on sets and it was just fucking chaos and then people are trying to figure that system out again and they're like oh and so the, by the time you get done with that set they go you know what's a really good idea is we should probably walk the actress through here first and you're like yeah, that's like a thing that's existed since time began yeah you know and it's it, it filters all the way through through post-production and there's like an order of operation like if we're editing something you got to get picture locked before you get into all the polishing stuff so before I send the footage over to the sound guys to do their sound editing or before we start to do color or before we start to do any sort of mastering effects, it's got to go in picture lock, which basically means we have an edit, that edit is approved, seal of approval, that edit does not change. And there are some times where that edit has to change and it throws the whole system awry. And that's why post-production schedules get all crazy. Because everybody is working off that sync timeline that is created in that process. In filmmaking, my point is that filmmaking, if done right, there's only one way to take this chaos, which is an idea that comes out of one asshole's brain. And he has to filter it to all these different technicians. You need this reliability of process there so that everybody can do their jobs right. And I feel that way when I'm an editor in the edit room. And I know that when I start the computer, the computer is going to start up. I know that if I save and back my stuff up, that stuff is going to exist. I know that I've purchased and bought the right hardware so that when I hit that space bar, it plays. And as soon, and, and oftentimes with like software updates, operating system updates, what happened yesterday when I hit that space bar because of that update, I hit that space bar again, and it just doesn't fucking work anymore. Well, yeah, it just changes. Well, like, we did a whole bunch of testing just recently on, like, Premiere and After Effects and stuff. And then, I think it was, like, a week ago, Adobe launches a whole new update. It changes everything. Mm -hmm. Luckily, this time, not changing everything much. 
but a little bit. And yeah, it just changes over time, like what things work and what things don't, how it changes, how it uses different hardware and all that. That's got to be really irritating. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because yeah, they're, they're constantly, because you, you, I mean, you guys don't work for Adobe. You guys no. are a, a company that sort of depends on Adobe, especially for the edit stuff, because they're the primary thing. So you need to be able to create hardware that works in, in collaboration with them. And then, of course, they're constantly shifting their... Yeah, I mean, it's usually not a huge change. Usually it's just like small minor tweaks here and there, like you want to have more of a video card power or something on it. But yeah, sometimes it's major. Like uh, two years ago, After Effects totally changed. Totally, totally changed the kind of hardware you want to use on it. Like it used to be dual Xeon, crazy workstations and stuff were awesome. And then right after that update, it was terrible. It's terrible for what you were, what you'd be doing in After Effects. So yeah, it just changes, and it, yeah, it kind of sucks. Especially when they 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 time, tend to time it like right before NAB, and we try to do all of our testing leading up to NAB, so we're up to date. And then they yeah they launch the update right before, and yeah. yeah and that, from a awesome. from a user's perspective, it's interesting because. Okay, so we pay for the Creative Cloud. I love Adobe, love their products, they're awesome. And they say that right off the bat. We pay for the Creative Cloud. Part of the benefit of the Creative Cloud is that I get their updates constantly. So in your mind as a user, you go, well, updating means it's gonna go better. Like an update means it's gonna go faster or it's gonna fix a couple of bugs and it's gonna do that stuff. We don't conceive on our end that they're planning for some new thing that they're doing so that they're just swapping how it integrates with the hardware. Yeah. And so when we go to hit that space bar again and the stuff starts stuttering, we go like, what the fuck? Like, this is supposed to be better and I'm still cutting with this. Same footage. How come that's not better anymore? And why do you think that they're they're swapping uh, it's up? It's just, just changing. I mean, hardware changes and they're keeping up with things. They're learning new stuff. Um, you know, all the... You know, Intel and NVIDIA and all these hardware guys. I mean, it's just everything changes over time. Usually it's not significant. Like, it really, like Premiere, you know, stuff you use most of the time, it, it doesn't change significantly. But yeah, that After Effects thing, like that kind of stuff is where it gets totally weird. And their official answer still is like, if you need really high performance when you're using After Effects, re revert back to 2014, you know, After Effects 2014 to do your final export because it'll be way faster. And still, that's like, two, three years later, or no, I think it's just two years later now, and that's still their official answer, is if you want higher performance, use the old version. But yeah, it just, it just you know, things change, they're just But that's, you know, that's where with the it. sword cuts both ways. Like, yeah. if you want something highly flexible, it's gonna be highly breakable, too. I mean, there's a lot of iterations of computers out there, and so, but you have one software package. So what do you want it to do? You know, I mean, there's gonna be quirks. Um, there's also the human element, like I think that, if you look at technology coldly, you would assume, well, it should work every time, but it's just made by people, you know, I mean, it's just people doing it. And so sometimes they fuck up, you know, and that's yeah. just the way it is. I mean, <laughs> and so you just have to realize like that's part of the process. And I think it's important. Like if you're going to love the process, you have to love the warts too. You know what I mean? And, and plan for it. Know that, Hey, you know, uh, like in our business, uh, we're able to take some customers and we put them on a slower update deployment ring. Um, so there's a fast ring and a slower ring and like a never a glacier moving ring. And, you know, we, we, we move that to try to protect them because you have these issues. So it's, it's never perfect. It never has been, and it's never been intended to, I mean, uh, especially computing has always had a, a foundation of this kind of hacker mentality of just try it and see if it works, um, and put it out in the field and, and, uh, you know, it, you know, with the great with uh, with that flexibility comes sometimes you get cut by the blade.
That's a good point, man. That's a really good point. Let me ask you something. I'm curious. Like, I'm sure when you were a younger man and you're going to film school, you really had, I'm, my guess is by knowing you, that it was really behind the camera. That's where you really fell in love. So do you feel sometimes a tension between the edit room and the camera? <laughs> it depends on what you're doing. I think that <laughs> because I'll tell you this, like in photography, and you're a photographer, yep. genius photographer. No, not genius. No, no, no kissing here. We're not kissing each other. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, there's some people who are who decide, well, I'm going to set up a photo shoot so the camera catches what's real. And there's some people who are like Photoshop wizards. And there's that tension there. So do you, does that tension kind of exist for you, where it's like my job is to catch it on camera and to do as little editing as possible, or you find yourself going, well, I have to recover in the edit room. No, I, I, I think that there are definitely, for myself, no. I think that when I came up, yes, I knew the camera, and that was really a, I mean, I, I believe that it's a visual medium, so I'm very sort of obsessed with framing and, and obsessed with visual storytelling. But I was also, at the same time, trained, so I need to shut that, okay. I was also, at the same time, trained on editing and when I went to school I went to school in New York Film Academy um, I cut on steam backs which were like platter table surfaces and we shot on 16 millimeter uh, reversal film and it would roll through a, uh, a projected light and project on a tiny screen so you'd actually roll through the film pick where you wanted to do your cuts pull that film out put it on a splicer splice it take that stuff off. That's where the term bins comes from. When you're looking in, in, in uh, Premiere, there was literally a bucket next to us with a series of little tiny hooks that you would hang all of your cuts uh, by, by their sprockets on like these little coat hanger hooks. And so it was very sort of meticulous. And you really couldn't do like the MTV style of cutting because by the time you cut out like two or three frames to do that jump cut, and you're like, oh, this doesn't really work. You had to put all that stuff back together. So you had to put all those pieces back together so that you can go back to it. Um, so it taught me how to preconceive my edits and taught me how to shoot for my edits. So that's kind of where I come from. But there is a tension, especially in the advertising world, there is a tension between on set in the edit room. And I think mostly because they're two different hires. Mostly because when they hire their DP, their crew, sometimes their director, that is one stage for like an ad agency. They go, we're gonna pick these people, I have to bid on that stuff, I gotta go through the process of winning that bid, tell them how I'm gonna handle this on set. And a director on a commercial is different than being a director on a film. You're really there as quality control because the creative team is like, pick the shots, they've done the shot lists, they've done all that stuff. You're there for quality control and to manage the talent and then sort of make it work. So that in itself, it's its own process. Then they take all that footage and then they usually hire a post-production facility like us or like other big post-production places. That job then comes in. And it's usually the editor at that post-production facility that has to basically win that bid. It's usually the editor that is like proving his skill. 
or the producer has a really good relationship with that editor. Now, the director often doesn't go to the edit. Oftentimes, it gets pulled right out of your hands because it's not really your project, and it's put in the hands of the creative team and the producer, and then they take it to an editor, and then they start from there. So there's immediate disconnect between those two different teams. So oftentimes, when you're in an edit room, you'll find the blame game happening where they sit there and they go, well, if they had got more footage or if the shot was shot better or if this was done better, then we could make this thing really cool because there's a disconnect at that point. And sometimes when we shoot, what I like to do is actually do it on camera and on the mic and actually go, here's the reason why we're not shooting this coverage that you guys are going to be talking shit about later on. It's because this actor is having a hard time right now, blah, 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 blah. And so I, I put it on the microphone so that it's actually caught in record. Yeah. So that way when they get in the room, there isn't that tension. I think that's the only time that there's tension. I think if, as a filmmaker, there's tension between those two spaces, it's because you haven't done a good job in your prep having them communicate. I prefer to have an editor there. Like, we're doing a job next week, which is a corporate job, a hospital job, that Tony's cutting. and He'll be editing that whole piece. I'm bringing him on set to do data transfer and, and data management so that he's there, so that he can feel it, he can hear it, he can see it, he has that whole process of it, which will make it faster. And then in his downtime, he can be blogging footage, he can be putting stuff together, putting clips in order, so that that connection exists. So I think that's a long way to answer your question, but did I get to it? Yeah, you did. Okay, good, good. Yeah, because some, sometimes I think, uh, you know, people could say, well, your job's to get it and write in the shot, and, you know, the editing should take care of itself, but... Well, there's the, the other side of that too is that uh, I definitely noticed an issue, especially with certain agency folk and like uh, certain clients. They're so used to people who shoot now, they shoot everything super flat and they don't have a real look in mind, in concept yeah. for the shoot. And you're yeah. talking about color, right? Yeah. And they'll just go like, we'll just fix it all in post. We'll take care of all this in post. So yeah. the shoot is much faster. Everything's lit, kind of boring. Whatever Mike likes to do a lot of those things in camera because he pre-visualizes everything. There's a reason why he chooses a certain lens type. There's a reason why he has a certain light. There's a reason why he has certain colored gels available and flags and everything in there is to create his own depth in camera so that when we do get to post, we don't have to do as much legwork on that end. But then we have a lot of clients on set. They're like, well, why is this lighting taking so long? Why can't we just shoot it? And you're like, well, it's because you like this look, right? You like that look that we showed you. We got this by doing it mostly in camera. I would say like 70 to 80% of it is in camera. Like whenever I, I color one of Mike's uh, jobs, it's rarely ever a correction job. It's a grade. Yeah. And like a lot of other jobs that come into the office it's uh it's it's both it was shot flat they don't have a look in mind they kind of have a feeling that they want and that really matters on the edit i have to match the edit too and the music that's going in yeah. so that becomes a correction job and then a grade a style yeah. so it's 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 much better to have that pre-visualization and have and shoot for a look than it is and, and take that time on set to make sure you get it right rather than just like screw it we'll we'll light it as flat as we can, we'll shoot it flat, and we'll just we'll take care of it in post. It's post's problem. People just kind of like pass the buck a lot. Yeah, yeah, and that's human nature. You you just you're just creating a logjam. Someone's gonna get screwed on time, 
And, you know, it's, it's all, it always filters down to post not having enough time because somebody gets screwed somewhere else and it just like, it trickles down in that way. It's really just that pre-planning. Like, and I've worked on jobs where I haven't had time to pre-plan and sometimes the jobs just sort of roll through and all your planning goes to shit because there's some sort of outside fact. It's that tornado. It's that, it's that hurricane of crap. You know what I mean? So no matter how much you plan for something, it could still all go to shit. And then you sort of just try to fall back on whatever systems are in place. And you're just like, please, for the love of God, slate these shots and do this for the edit. And because we have to sync these things and please yeah. make sure you go through this process to save our ass. But yeah, man, I like, I don't think there's a right way to make movies. I think that there are, there's a, a rhythm to making movies and to get them done on time. But it's very fluid and flexible, all of it. Which is interesting. It's interesting that you asked that question. And, and I, you guys are an interesting. Like, do you guys have any questions for us as creatives from a technical standpoint? Like, do you guys have anything? Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> I mean, we talk to you a lot. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, you and I mean, we have a couple other guys we, we talk to as well. And, like, I don't know, we always just seem to talk to you whenever we have those questions. So I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Yeah, the like, line of communication seems to always be open there. Was so. there anything that you, not not just not just from us, but is there anything that you learned through your creatives that changed the way that you guys do things? Oh, I mean, totally. I mean, just from like our, our testing process, I mean, which is obviously what I care about the most because that's what I do. I mean, years ago, when like, I think when we started talking with you, like our Premier Pro testing was it was terrible, honestly, looking back on it. Like we were looking at like 1080p and 4K H.264. And that was like it. And now, I mean, we, we talk to you a lot. How about you use red, red cameras and you know, other people using ProRes and stuff like that. And we've just been able to really change what we do, what we look at, how our machines work when we're working up to you know, 6K or even 8K now. You know, especially this year at NAB, we're hearing 8K more and more. So just, you know, just hearing that stuff and just knowing what you're doing, what you're planning on doing in the next couple of years, I mean, that's, that's gold for us. I'll tell you, you know, the, the, really the thing that's been great for us by talking to creators is that I think what is going to be, what makes, is going to make us successful in the business is, is falling in love with, falling in love with our customers' work. Like, I want you to make movies. That's Thanks, what I want dude. you to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's what I want you to do. We have customers who are trying to cure cancer. We have customers that are trying to clean up the uh, uh, clean up the environment. We have customers that are trying to fix transportation problems. They're trying to do autonomous vehicles. They're trying to put uh, commercial availability in space. I mean, we have customers doing like really incredible work that's really moving the ball forward for humanity. You know what I mean? So uh, in our position. And I think I think that as a creator, um, sometimes maybe you find yourself, you know, not great at something and you have to kind of do that. And being part of the tooling of that trade is a great way to stay connected. Like you shouldn't see it as, you know, you maybe you maybe someone doesn't make it as a director, maybe doesn't make it as a cinematographer. And so they said, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get involved and I'm going to sell cameras, you know, or I'm going to be part of that environment. Um, and I think that's totally legit because you're supporting other great work. And I think that's pretty noble. So I think one of the things for us is uh, getting to creators is just realizing how taxing it is. And I'm not just talking about computers. I don't want to be a shill here, but you know, any of your gear, you know, if it doesn't work out of the box, I mean, I certainly don't want to be laying on the operating table 
and the <laughs> surgeons got PC problems. You know what I mean? Like, I want it to be working. Sorry, there's an update. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Sorry, that's a, check back in three hours. So I think that's the uh, thing that really has been for us is, is it, it sounds weird to say it, but almost make the technology second. You know, it is what it is. The technology is what it is. And so you have to just come up with the best solution you can. Um, and it really takes time to kind of get to know what people are doing. And, and there's just some really interesting work going on out there, you know, and uh, and that's the part that makes it really enjoyable. We get like a little um, I think that there's two places that have a, a, a like an all access pass to life and business. And that's the law and I.T. <laughs> like they touch everything. And so being part of that I.T. group, we get a little peek into a, a broad array of what's going on out there in the world and interesting work because a lot of it's being done on computers, whether that's like artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, biotech, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, space travel, all these markets, they all, they're all being done on computers, you know? Um, and so that gives us a little, a little, uh, peek behind the curtain on, the, on that business. And that's what makes our job fun. Yeah. That's awesome. And I, I often forget that because we're so absorbed with our industry and our film business that I forget that you guys are the supplying these other outlets, which is really awesome and amazing. And you guys are in a very similar situation to the way that we work, especially in the documentary aspect of stuff where we get to basically come in and take over someone's life for a little while and, and get a look at it. And it's very similar. It's a lot of yeah. parallel to that. It is. I, I think that, uh, you know, we get to uh, play a uh, place of trust and we take that. It's got to take it very seriously. I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> this seems like a good time to take a break and talk about some of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Puget Systems. Obviously, I'm not going to do a big plug here because the whole episode is about these cats. So just go to PugetSystems.com. You can check out all the stuff that we've been talking about. And uh, if you want to buy a new edit system, there's stuff there that you're going to really be excited about. So go to PugetSystems.com. Rule Boston Camera. They helped sponsor us for this episode and gave us a ton of audio gear to record multiple people in Las Vegas. So thank you guys. But as a freelancer, I completely believe in having a really great relationship with your local rental house. Essentially, it makes me worth more money. And here's why. Any and every camera on the market is at my disposal. And with my buddies at Rule, I can call them up directly and get training on all the new gear. Together, we can put together a package that specifically works for the project that I'm working on. I mean, how many times have you hired a cameraman or worked with a DP that is constantly trying to sell you on the gear that he owns? Regardless of whether or not it works for the piece. I mean, it's so ass backwards to do it that way. So if you want my opinion, go start a relationship with your local rental house. And if you're in the Northeast, I highly recommend Rule Boston Camera. All right, I can. So if you're in the market to buy gear, after I just did this plug for the rental houses, if you're looking to buy gear, make sure you pick up stuff that's going to work for every project you do. Now, ICANN's a great resource for this because they sell everything from camera support to monitors, wireless video, and lights. I bought and use and love their battery-powered LED stuff. These lights are fantastic. They have a bunch of different types, a bunch of different sizes, a bunch of different models. I mean, I use those lights from everything from my documentary work to music video work 
to just doing some photo work too, actually, believe it or not. So go to iCanCorp.com and take a look around. There's a lot of really cool stuff there from really cool people. Let's get into some other stuff. So, um, well, enough with the tech talk because we've done plenty <laughs> of that. Yeah. You know, I don't want to, you know, we're not plugging you guys. You guys are great, but that's it. No more plugs. I, uh, All right. How, no more plugs. How has like the trade show stuff done for business? Uh, the trade show, um, and Eric can speak to it more uh, from like boots on the ground aspect because he knows way more than I do. Yeah. But uh, for running the business, for us, it's really like coming down to authority building and exposure. That's why we do it. We're present. And I think it's uh, important to be part of community. You have to show up. Yeah. You want to be, if you want to have, if you want to be someone's friend, you got to call them, you got to text them, and you got to show up at their house every once in a while. And that's kind of how I look at from a, business strategy. That's how I look at trade shows. Yeah, I think it's also important to remember that, I mean, the reason that we go out there is not, I mean, granted, yes, it's great to go out there and sell systems, but that's not necessarily the number one reason we're out there. Because we do want to get out there. That way we can do stuff like this and actually talk to you guys and learn more about exactly how our systems are being used and stuff like that. So, I mean, just, yeah, just getting out there, talking to people, that's that's the big win for me. How many trade shows a year do you guys do? Uh, I think we're at the point where we're doing about six to eight, I think it is. Um, depending upon if we start expanding a little bit more. I mean, next year could be potentially 10, I think it is. It's got to be quite the, I mean, it's got to be really kind of a pain in the ass. Well, you you got you to gotta move all this stuff out. You guys it's have no move? different than working on a film shoot. It has to be a process. You know, we have like a definite system and we have to work the system. So you can't, what you can't do is reinvent the wheel every fucking time <laughs> yeah. or it's going to be painful. What makes it really inconvenient is they always decide to schedule them all at the same time. It's like spring break. That's when all the shows are happening, you know, so yeah. it makes it a total nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. We've so, got a pretty heavy travel coming up. So are you guys going to be on the road for a while, do you think? Uh, yeah. In two weeks, uh, we're going to GTC. That's the NVIDIA hosted event. Um, that's the one where uh, they're heavy, heavy focus on like machine learning, AI, stuff like that. So we're pretty excited to get out to that one. It's always... So it's a cool event. So you guys are like outside of Seattle, right? Is that like where where's where's home base again? We're in a little town called Little Town. It's a mid-sized town called Auburn, Washington. It's about thirty minutes south of Seattle. I've never been. What's what's it like up there? It's uh, basically <laughs> warehouses. And, uh, you know, if you're lo- if you're looking for like a meal that has uh, doesn't meet expectations, then that's really <laughs> a great place to go. It's like a food desert, not because there's not food, because it's just all terrible. There's no so, flavor there, yeah. None, none, no. It's like you know, your omelet comes with American cheese and canned olives. You know, it's just Auburn. Is is that near Aberdeen? No, Aberdeen is down by the coast. So you're thinking of Kurt Cobain's hometown there? No, my uh, my sister lives in Aberdeen. For yeah, right. Aberdeen's uh, down towards the ocean, closer to uh, Portland, and that's probably about two hours away. Okay, yeah, that's kind of it. so. You made your place sound so exciting to visit. FYI, it's awesome. <laughs> um, so no, never visit Auburn. <laughs> you can come visit us, but then we're gonna leave. Oh. <laughs> then we'll go up to Seattle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then, don't say I'm gonna plan my vacation for Auburn. <laughs> okay, so you there had- is a horse track. And on the first Friday night, they do beer every hour. They spin a wheel to determine the price. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And it could be a quarter. It could be two bucks. It's just like every hour, they just get drunker and spin it. You know? <laughs> it's two bucks this hour. Yay. So that is basically the highlight of Auburn right there. The well, it's like the hotel that we're staying in right now has a happy hour where for like five to six. Five to six beers or a nickel. Or what? Five cents. Miller Lite. What? 
Wait, Miller first Lite, off, Miller why Lite am I not Lite. booked in this hotel? <laughs> what? <laughs> what am I doing? Second, what time is it? It's like Miller Lite and Bud Light uh, for five cents. It's like an, an eight-ounce glass. But I don't think there's a limit to how many you can get at a, at a time. We were getting two, two each at a time. So we'd go up and grab six beers for 30 cents, 35 cents. That was such a mind-blowing thing for me where the woman looks at us and goes, how many do you want? And you go, six. And I go, we're ordering six beers. Like, I just turned to you and I was like, what? And then Dave reaches in his pocket and pulls out like a quarter and a dime. And that's what it should be. It was just surreal. Yeah, it was you sur- can't just pay 30 cents for some beers. It's like, just give her, give her a dollar. Yeah. That's still too cheap. <laughs> it's still a 70 cent tip. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was that? Was that Cleveland? I was trying to remember. Uh, that was it Cleveland? They did 10 cent beer nine and then it all went crazy. Oh, I don't know. Burn the place oh, down. yeah, the, oh. The, the, the baseball game. Yeah. 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 Oh, no. I, I think it was Cleveland. It was like back in the 70s. Uh, it's going to be Cleveland, Milwaukee, somewhere in the Midwest there. And they did 10 cent beer night. And they ended up having to suspend the game because it just got so out of control. Best part is they just, instead of going, that's a terrible idea. We're never going to do it again. In true Midwest spirit, six weeks later, they did it again. You know what I mean? Like, and, they, and they said it was so out of control the first time that they had, uh, so back in the day, they would bring, roll the beer up in these uh, trucks and they would serve it from the trucks around the stadium, you know, and then they'd take it back. Because that's when everyone had a local brewery. Like out in us, we had Rainier. We you have Rainier beer now, but it's like actually brewed somewhere in the Midwest or something. You had this locally brewed. So they would drive their trucks over and they'd serve out beer. And the the girls work in the beer truck abandoned ship because the crowd got to, so then the crowd was just feeding itself the beer. Like, it's not like they locked up and left. They just walked away. It's so great how just six weeks later they said, "Hey, fuck it, we're gonna do it again." You know what I mean? That's crazy, man. It, it's sports stuff. Like, I mean, we're from Boston, obviously. You guys know that, and that is the most sports intense city. I think. Oh. Well, it's gotten weird over the past like 20 years because all the teams are winning now. Yeah, yeah. What was the year? I remember there was the year that they rioted. 2004 when the the, the Sox won their first. When they won the first Bennett, one. Yeah. yeah. And I, I like it. Shit. I'm an I'm an asshole. Like I really stopped caring about sports when I was a kid. Like but the first baseball strike, and I was like, I'm out. You guys, you guys are making ton, tons of money. I'm out of here. So I stopped really paying attention, and and I forgot that that game was happening that night. How could you forget that game? I don't know, dude. It's totally stupid. And I forgot, and I went to a restaurant down there. So I drove down there. I was with a couple of friends. One of our old buddies, Ben, actually. This is a good story. He ended up going down and eating in this restaurant. And as soon as you get down there, you go, oh, you know, because like it's just full. The place is just full of Red Sox fans, which are their very specific breed of people the Red Sox fans and so you're in it and you're like are they like when you say specific breeds because the the branches of the tree are few and far between <laughs> <laughs> they're just incredibly I mean they're incredibly intense they're just very intense yeah and very they're a very specific type of intense like I lived in New York City for almost a year when I went to school in New York City and Yankees fans are very intense but specifically different like I remember riding on a subway train in in during the World Series or something when I was out there, 
And there was just this old lady, and she had a broom. It was like, I, I'm so terrible at this. Whatever broom, sweep a team. Sweep, yeah. sweep a team. And she's still on the train. She's like, we're going to kill you. you know. And she's like, really? And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, lady. And she's just like, really weird. But she was still really kind of nice. She was a little creepy, but she was still nice. She was like, oh, you like sports? And I was like, cool. In Boston, it's different. It's like, what team do you like? Oh, fuck you. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's well, it, like, Boston sports kind of suffers from like that little brother syndrome where it's like, oh, we can do that shit too. And fuck you, we're better is like their the attitude yeah. for every team. And so like and you start pounding beers, and you'll like a lot of people say, I don't hear a Boston accent out of you. I start pounding beers and you start to hear that Boston accent. And most of the time that accent comes from you just being like, fuck you. Like it just, it just <laughs> starts. Out of anger. Yeah, or, or just pure laziness where it's like, oh, give me the fucking car and like, fuck you. Like it just starts when you start drinking. So like Red Sox fans, when they first show up, they're really nice. They get their hats. Everybody's really excited. And they're doing the long march to, to Fenway. They keep to themselves, and then as soon as the, as soon as the beers start drops. happening, yeah. and then that night we're there, they win, and then shit gets weird. Like, was that the first one or the second one? Because the first one they were in St. Louis when they won, and the second one I think they were in Boston. I think it was when they were in Boston. Yeah, okay. And they win, and shit got weird, and people started rioting, and it's like. We fucking won. Why are we rioting? And I remember leaving the leaving the restaurant, walking down the street past this big movie theater that's at Fenway. And as we walk down the street to leave, there is a row of cops with plastic shields coming at us. And I was like, what? Yeah, you didn't just go out. You went out towards Fenway. So we're like, what Fun the fuck? people, man. They always head to danger. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so, so it's just like, what the fuck is going on? And these guys are coming at us, and then they start tossing tear gas. So tear gas starts getting tossed on the street. And so I remember ducking into the movie theater, which had the glass doors, and it was very surreal. Like, the street fills with tear gas. It's like uh, like very cinematic, you know what I mean? Like dark figures. It's almost like the mist, you know, with like you know, like hands coming up on the glass and people like throwing up and like, oh my god, and screaming in like the worst Boston accents possible. And I remember standing in there just looking at this sort of cinematic display outside these glass windows. And my buddy, who I always picked on, and he's standing in front of it, and he goes, I can't believe this is happening. I go, Me neither. And I crack the door open. So that it wafts in so it a hits bunch of tear gas. <laughs> it just hits his face. And he starts screaming and throwing <laughs> up in the movie theater. It was wonderful. It was just a wonderful story. I don't know why I brought it up. I think it was just to embarrass that kid on the podcast. But um, yeah, Red Sox fans are crazy. <laughs> yeah, and he's... Poor Ben, he's, he hates sports. Yeah. He was escaping sports to hang out with you, and you decided to go to a movie where all the sports are happening. Drag him into that. And then yeah. he gets tear gassed. <laughs> yeah. By his friend who's like, Come hello. On. Oh, the door tear gassed. So we got to get back to the important thing is, where is this hotel serving nickel beer? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I feel like we dodged the subject here. And I feel like well, we're, we're staying at what? Uh, the Flamingo. No, don't. I was going to say, we're, they're not sponsoring us, so we don't want to give out their name. Don't plug it. <laughs> don't plug them. Don't give them a free plug. They don't give a shit. It's not a good hotel. No. The Flamingo's not <laughs> So good. I'm at the Flamingo, but I'm at the Hilton behind the Flamingo. So there's a Hilton Grand Vacation behind the Flamingo, and I'm staying there. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. a bunch of shit in that area, too. It's yeah. crazy. And that's actually been kind of nice. 
I went out. I went out last night. I I was like, oh, I don't have any fucking water, so I'm gonna leave the hotel room. And I was walking around. I ended up ending up. I had the the in and out that's attached to oh, the see, flamingo. I gotta go tonight. I'm going in. Yeah. yeah. See? Made an attempt last night. Didn't happen. It it's turns like, out it's not open at two thirty in the morning. <laughs> what time did you go? Oh, it was still early. It was like ten or eleven. Oh, right, because we're still on East yeah. Coast time. So, so it, was, it was like two in the morning for me or whatever the fuck. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. yeah, total fat kid move. Wasn't even that hungry. Saw in and I was like, I'm gonna get a burger. I didn't even know you went. Oh, I go and, and I, I saw your Instagram and I went, yeah, fat kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. I ate my double double in bed. <laughs> in bed, <nice>. in bed. <laughs> Fully clothed <laughs> like a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> I, had this, I had this roommate in college and then Seattle. Kind of our in and out is called Dicks, Dicks Driving. And uh, I know I get a bag of dicks, right? So <laughs> they would have these uh, Dicks Deluxe and these the burgers. I mean, they're just like um, two patties and it's just this uh, sauce and cheese. And I mean, it's it's not good. I mean, it's delicious, but it's not good for you, right? And I had this roommate and he would get drunk and get in his bed and he wouldn't shut up until he like threw a burger up there at him. <laughs> and we would do like, we would go to Dick's and he'd be running his mouth and be like, Hey man, just shut the fuck up. So you always and just they, had like a reserve burger. Yeah, and you had to like you had to make sure you ordered a couple ones. If not, then he'd be totally annoying. And you just chuck that burger up into his bed and he'd just lay in bed and just eat it in his bed. Shit would get everywhere, man. I don't know what his problem was. What is this eating process? Like yeah. rolling around on it? Yeah, he was just so excited. Mom, 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 you know. Oh, man. He wanted to rub it on his face. I don't know, man. You know, people do weird stuff for burgers. Yeah, and we were just talking about this because we're about to hang out with uh, Dave's brother Nick tonight. And Nick has been in a bunch of our movies. He's an actor. He's great. He's very professional. Really cool guy. Yeah, Nick was, uh, he played the lead in our uh, Kill Switch Engage video for all. Is this supposed to be like a contrast to Dave? I mean, you're getting all these compliments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> handsome. And Unlike someone. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, the, the, like, the gene pool, which like, all the talent. Like, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, <we're> like, <laughs> I love how excited about that. He doesn't have a mic, can't even say shit. So, like, <laughs> But yeah, no, he's coming into town tonight. We're gonna hang out with him, and uh, I love him. But I was giving him shit earlier because he's like, "What did he? Where did he want to go?" Wahlburger. No, it's Ugh. a fancy no. burger place. Yeah, I mean, you got Wahlburger out there. Is yeah. that actually good? No, 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 it's not good. No, it's not good. Nothing good about it. Yeah, they got a Wahlburger here. They're terrible. It's expensive, and it's it's not good. Yeah. It's a bummer. They're yeah. not a sponsor either, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thing running through my head. Like, am I ever working with Mark? <laughs> uh, the burgers are really great there. Yeah. <laughs> he knows they're bad. <laughs> He's not he stupid. Knows He's, not He's, not He's not stupid. <laughs> but yeah, Nick was coming into town tonight, and he wanted us to go to some burger place. And we were just making fun of it. Or one like it when we checked into the hotel. Yeah, they were they were playing like uh, as soon as you get in, you, like immediately at, at the check-in desk. There's all these like big screen TVs behind the check-in desk showing you all the all the shit to do in town. Oh, here's the yeah. places to eat. Here's the shows to see. Here's the casinos to throw your money away at. And one of the things was like, here are the different burger spots. So it's like Gordon Ramsay's fucking joint. Like these other places where these like huge burgers are just stacked full of shit that doesn't belong on a burger. And then it just has like a steak knife through it, like all the way up to like the handle. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you can't even eat that thing. I, it, I, that's I, the kind of place that Nick wants to go to. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've actually, now we've been to, we've, I've been to some great restaurants here in Vegas, but by and large, 
they just try to overwhelm you with quantity. Yeah. It's the food is actually not that good here generally. It's the American way. It's yeah. America. This yeah. this city is like America turned all the way fucking up. Yeah. I mean, there's literally a place in downtown Las Vegas where if you're over 350 pounds, you eat free. What? <laughs> no yeah, shit. Heart, heart, heart attack heart grill. Heart attack right? grill. Jesus Christ. It's a burger <laughs> joint where, yeah, if you're over 300, you, you walk in. You're king. They yeah. weigh you. And then if you're over 350 pounds, you eat free. Yeah, there's so a giant scale. That's American right there. So so first, <laughs> first you're part of the show. Yeah. 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 Circus act gets on the fucking scale. And then second, they're like, you need to die, and we're here to murder you. I mean, it's called Heart Attack Grill. Well, <laughs> don't they even give you, uh, like, a hospital gown to wear? Or oh, yeah, everyone's like wearing hospital gowns, yeah. 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 <laughs> Black, like, do we all America. adjust to that weight? It just, yeah. <laughs> looks like a place that just hopes and dreams go to die, yeah. Oh, it must just smell like that. Like, yeah, oh. but the, the, the town here, it doesn't have, you know, people, to me, I think Vegas is uh, kind of overplayed in that area. You know, you hear about, oh, these all these great restaurants and chefs and i've tried a lot i mean we've been to a lot of great place quote great places here and you walk away going you know it's not it's not that great actually the probably the best meal we've had on the road he knows what i'm gonna talk about was at a gas station in houston and they served barbecue and uh, we go in and we find this place i don't know how we found the place but we got done we spent uh, about eight hours at johnson space center doing a tour there with some customers we got a lot of systems in the space program and uh we were starving because we thought we were going to be there like four hours. And uh, so we came out, go to this little gas station. And you know it's going to be a great restaurant when you order something? And they go, no, nah, you can't have it. <laughs> she, no. she literally looks back at us and she's like, no, you're not getting that. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, that's not good today. You're not getting that. And then so I just finally – I love restaurants where I can just go, you, you know what? You tell me. You, you get – you just tell me. So if I can go to a place where you, know, you can just tell whoever's working in the kitchen, I don't know, make me something. You know, those are probably the best places. I completely agree with you. I don't know if I ever told you guys this story, but I'll go on another tangent. Tony and I were doing a, um, a documentary in the past couple of years, like two or three years, we were shooting this documentary on inner city gangs. And um, it was a film directed by our buddy Rudy Hippolyte, second movie I've done with him. One of the only directors that I still work as a director of photography because the experience is so much fun. And uh, this film enabled us to go to certain parts of Boston that because of my skin color and my heritage, it is considered dangerous to do so. So like, uh, and from Well, our, it's not really dangerous, but, but it, we're, 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 we're told that it's dangerous. Like you don't go to this part so of town. You, it's you like, never go down to like- You're not gonna test those waters or yeah, anything. Yeah, you never go right? down to parts of Roxbury, you never go down to But it's fine though, it's, yeah. We learned that. Yeah. And one of the best parts about doing his films is that more often than not, we're given sort of this pass because we have handlers, we have people that are with us. We get to meet people immediately. So like all of those blockades are sort of torn down and we get to meet these folks. And so for a while we were hanging out in these neighborhoods that were gorgeous and the people were just so wonderful and the stuff was so great. And it's a part of the city, a big part of Boston that I never would have been able to experience if I wasn't doing this movie. And now I'll totally drive down there and totally go and do whatever I want because we've had our eyes sort of opened to, to what it actually is. Well, to connect the stories here, one day we were uh, going out for lunch. Do you remember this? Yeah, it was uh, – was it lunch or was it dinner? Because it was, it was that night shoot. Yeah, they all blur. Yeah. So we were going out for dinner and um, our handler, 
was like, I know this great place. Um, they do uh, like the amazing Jamaican food, yeah. is what he said. And so Tony and I, uh, being guys that eat out all the time, yeah. Being, my my experience, my only experience with like Jamaican food is like beef patties and like jerk like chicken, and that's it. Like I have no other experience with Jamaican food. So it's like an actual Jamaican joint, yeah. yeah, yeah. And both of us were like off the grid. Yeah, we're totally down. So they take us to this like little strip. And it's like a little strip, like a couple barbershops on the strip, like some like used electronics store or something else. And then there's this storefront that looks like it should be a restaurant. I don't even know if there was a sign on it. And then you go inside and there's all like the display cases and everything's empty. And the place is empty. We walk in there and there's a woman behind the counter and there's no menu or anything. There's like no menu up. And we walk in and, and we sort of look at each other like, what the fuck are we doing here? And she says hello and she's really friendly with the handler. And and he talks to her a little bit and he's like, do you guys all want food? And we're like, yeah, of course, you know, we're here to eat food. You guys like spicy food? You like Jamaican jerk? And I, and I love Jamaican jerk chicken. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Jamaican jerk. But I'm looking at the case and there's nothing. There's nothing there. And she goes, okay. So then someone goes downstairs, brings up like a card table or folding table and chairs and they set us up this thing and we sit down in the spot and she goes off and starts to cook and she cooks it from scratch we were in there for a while we were in there for at least an hour and she goes back in the kitchen starts to make this food and everybody ordered slightly different dishes and she was cooking them all up from scratch and they brought them out and it was amazing like the most amazing uh, uh, jerk chicken that I've ever had. And I, oh, granted, I've never been to Jamaica. Granted, I've never done that stuff. But it was fantastic. And um, it was just one of those eating experiences that you would never have as a, as in your daily life because it's in a neighborhood that you shouldn't go into. And then you drive by and you look at it and there's no signage. There's no nothing happening there. But we just went in and we had like this incredibly personal meal experience. Um, they're really the only meal experiences worth having. I mean, there's the, you, it's so much different than here. Yeah, no, yeah. We, we all ate like family style too. It was like yeah. the director, his producer, uh, coach, yep. the two of us, our sound guy, the handler, and one of the uh, the other guys that was with the handler. Yeah, and it was just us. We just ate family style with the woman cooking, and whoever was there with her was, I think, like her brother was helping her, her with the uh, the meals and like the. All the the prep work and family style is really the way to go. Oh yeah. Oh, to shared food, shared food is the because I was talking about this earlier. That ultimately, like, if you can't communicate, like, if we speak a different language, we're from a different place. Food is that one thing that connects us. Yeah. yeah. And if we're having like an awkward thing, like I like to do a lot of my pre meetings. Like if I'm meeting people uh, for films or from like courting actors or from courting crew and courting folks. I like to have them come over and I cook because it breaks down all these barriers. It breaks down the nervousness. People are in that space and they're just sort of like, oh, okay, all right, great. You know, and like if we bring people and barbecue for people, there's a process involved. A beer gets put in your hand immediately. And then it's like, what are you doing? And, and Chris, you grill too and smoke. So like, does that come over? You know, and you yeah. break that rule where you're not supposed to lift the lid, and you lift that lid, and you let the smoke out, and Just you look to give inside, everybody a taste, yeah. and, and everybody looks at it, and they're like, A, smells amazing, I want to eat whatever the fuck it is that you're making. <laughs> B, the commitment and the time that you put into making this thing for me says a lot, 
And C, I have something to talk about. Like, let's talk about what it is that you're making and let's talk about that stuff. And whenever we do barbecues or grills or, or have these sort of personal experiences, it always goes from food to life. And I always feel like the conversation starts to get into like, what makes you happy? Why are you happy? And especially after you start eating and you start drinking beers and you just feel really good. And there's that moment where you're just sort of sitting next to somebody who was a stranger to you, you know, two hours beforehand and you guys are like, like vibing. Now breaking bread. I mean, that's the way to connect with people. That's even like a good business tip for the listeners to see, you know, connect with those people in those spaces. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I, I, I learned this lesson early on in my career. I, I had a, a real customer service issue. My inside sales guys weren't getting along with some of my customers. They're fighting and arguing with each other. And, and I asked this guy one day, Bob, I said, how long have you been selling to this customer? He goes, about 20 years. And I said, well, when's the last time you sat down with this guy and had a lunch? He goes, I've never met him. 20 years, they'd only talked on the phone. Every day, Monday through Friday, they talked on the phone for 20 years and never met. So then I started a deal where I'd go out twice a week. I'd take one of the inside guys, and I'd go out, and we'd go have lunch. We'd go meet people and uh, either take pizza or go to lunch or something, you know, and uh, have a meal. And, like, all of a sudden, all my customer service issues went away. Because once you eat with somebody... It's hard to motherfuck them. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's really hard. It's like, ah, you know, like, sure, he totally blew it, but, you know, stuff happens, you know? It yeah. goes, yeah, so I think that, uh, I think that's a good strategy. It's, and those are really the best moments, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I don't want to come off as, and I know you don't either, I don't want to come off as someone that is manipulating the, the, the experience, like, look, if I'm going to close this deal, I got to take him out to eat. That isn't really the mindset. It's like, you, you want to have this personal connection. Myself, I want to feel something about you so that way I work harder for you. I think it's, you know? I think it's even more basic than that. I agree with what you're saying, but like eating is one of the basic things we do as people. Yeah. I mean, here we are. We're sitting in this beautiful hotel 60 floors up from Las Vegas. You strip all that away and we're out in the hills here and we're eating together, you know? So I think it's really, it's just more primitive than that. And I think it really connects deeper than that because of that. It's not, it's not about closing the deal. It's not about manipulating people. Um, if, if it does manipulate people, because it really addresses a core comfort of, of humanity. You know, people want that connection. We live in an isolated world. These phones don't do shit for us, you know, as far as connecting people. You're not connected uh, via a phone. You're connected to just sitting around here, having a few drinks, podcasting. You know, that's where spending that FaceTime, that communal time, um, I think that's really what people are about. That's really cool. And I think at that I think at that point, I think it's good to wrap this whole thing up. Yeah, I think we're all set. Yeah, I uh, really appreciate hanging out with you guys tonight. And uh, let's go out and have some of that little food community. <laughs> I know, people have been blowing me up on our, our rest of our crews. Like, are we eating dinner? <laughs> we're super hungry. Yeah, please feed us. Right yeah. All right, so let me just wrap this one out. And uh, thanks for being with us tonight. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, and uh, tune in next week. Or no, <laughs> tune in whenever we do another episode. <laughs> I've done way too many. Today. <laughs> Get a little too specific over there. <laughs> All right, we're good. Yeah, I'm. You know what? I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna plug them. Let's let's plug Bullet X. These guys make really fancy clips for putting gels on lights. Now they aren't just clothespins painted black. 
They have this really narrow nose that fits in between a light's barn doors and they have a really good grip to them. Now I know some of your listeners are like, barn doors on lights? Yeah, yeah, I know it, I know it. I'm getting really nerdy with lighting here. Just relax, this is for the lighting nerds. Lighting nerds, go check out bullet-x.com. I think you really dig what they're making. Um, and I started using them actually last week. All right, finally, McFarlane and Pesci. Why do I always give my company the shortest plug? <laughs> I just noticed that last week. All right, go to McFarlaneandPesci.com to see all of our latest stuff. Are you a big fan of the UFC? We've got content for you. Do you like metal and hip hop music? Yep, there's stuff up there for you too. Uh, how about you just want to binge on some really cool visuals, like really cool cinematography? Or maybe uh, check out some of my new chef's pieces. So you're into food porn and you want to drool over someone else eating food. It's all up there. And oh, hey, you can hire us too. Go to McFarlanePesci.com, check out all our new stuff, and hire us. All right, finally, follow me on Instagram. It's uh, Mike Pesci on Instagram. I just this week actually did a contest for fans to see my short film 12 kilometers which hasn't been released yet to the public um, and I wanted to get some feedback and a few reviews from you guys so I definitely love interacting with the fans and I love uh, rewarding you guys for following me by giving you access to stuff that I'm doing and uh, giving you the opportunity to be a part of stuff that general public doesn't get to be a part of. Uh, but actually big news around the 12km stuff that I'm really not allowed to talk about, but uh, let me give you a couple words. Feature film, Hollywood, yeah, yep. Also, I just got signed by UTA, it's a huge talent agency. Uh, they have offices in LA, uh, they have offices in New York and London. Um, and this is really fucking awesome, guys. Like, it, it's one of those moments in your career uh, where you feel like you're making a big step forward. I just went out to New York City and I met with my new agent, so I'm really excited about the future. So stay tuned, because things may change around a little bit. Um, all that being said, thanks for listening, and you know what? Fucking share the show if you like it. I need people to listen to the show. I need the numbers to go up. It makes it worth my time. It makes it worth your time. So if you like this show, if you think it's a great podcast, share it. Tell people about it. Rave about it. If you don't like it, then I'm sorry. See you later. <laughs> but anyway, thanks for listening. Bye.